Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by learning directly from current leaders and executives, influencing and making a better industry today. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host, and thank you so much for listening. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. I hope that you check out some of the other episodes and enjoy them as well. If you have been listening for a while, then thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode too. Today we'll be speaking with Yuval Marom. And what can I say about Yuval? I really admire the guy. He is a formidable presence in the data science industry in Melbourne, Australia. Until recently, he was head of data science at iSelect and there built an extraordinary team of fantastic data scientists doing excellent work. And he has also found time to help run Data Science Melbourne Meetup and also the R user group in Melbourne. Really, really amazing work. Yuval has recently moved to work in a startup. He's very secret at the moment, but he tells us about the rest of his journey and how he got where he is. It's a really great episode and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe, and today I'm sitting with Yuval. How are you doing, mate? Good, thanks. How are you? Great. So great. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for being on the show. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, mate. Very excited. So um, tell me, how did you originally get into the data space? What was it that, that hooked you in and, and brought you into the area? Well, both my parents are statisticians. I had it at home. There was no choice. I got to uni and studying uh, stats and computer science. And because um, I had them to help me out a bit, I quickly just fell in love with it. Just uh, what you can do with data and just wanting to get better at it and know what the tools are and solve real problems. Pretty early age. I was pretty clear on it. So, As you were growing up, did your parents show you examples of where to apply statistics or how did they get you excited about the field as you were growing up? Do you have any memories from them? I think it was more as I started going to uni and I got to understand, because they're academics, so I got to understand the world a bit and seeing what we've been able to achieve and the kind of areas that they've, well, because they've, they've done a bit of consulting, kind of areas like health and education, where they've been able to make a difference by using statistics and showing actionable insights. So yeah, it definitely piqued my interest. I don't kind of um, explicitly remember as a kid, yeah. you know, but I'm sure things happening and I was hearing things yeah. and, um, that influenced that. Some seeds there. Yeah. But that's great to see the impact of stats in different industries while at uni, while studying it, seeing what it could be. Yeah, definitely. It's not new. There's a lot of focus on it now, but this stuff is, I've been doing it for a long time. And good idea to do a double with computer science. Yeah. How did you come to that decision? So there's also an IT background in the family as well. So that drew my, my interest. I think I started programming when I was six seven i loved it so the combination is really what got me excited so the being able to build stuff by using programming skills and making good use of data to find interesting insights and actionable insights combination of the two is for me was the explosive combination again it was very clear to me that i wanted to be doing both and luckily you know there was back then already there were degrees that could offer them of course they weren't called data science but it's like a joint computer science and statistics and it was I loved it. So good. What did you program when you were? Initially, it was uh, Pascal in the very, very early days. Um, moved into C, so at university, a lot yeah. of C. 
And as a kid, what did you build on Pascal? I built um, some games, you know, those spaceship games. You get to shoot the spaceships going across the screen. That's, that's how I learned. Yeah, my dad just bought me a PC and, and a book that taught you Pascal. And as part of the learning, the exercises were to design game, to build this game. So as a kid, of course, you want get to get to the end so you can actually do it. So I was very motivated. That's kind of what got me started. And then I realized I was very passionate about it. That's amazing. Oh, well done. Especially to do the graphics side. Back then, it would have been tough. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty basic. But... Oh, but still, yeah. Yeah, I never did any graphics stuff. That's great. So then you studied statistics and computer science. And after the bachelor, what, what happened next? So at the end of my bachelor, there were a couple of units on neural networks and decision trees. That was my first exposure to machine learning and AI. Amazing. And... I just loved it so much. Again, just fell in love. So I had the opportunity to do a PhD. So I chose to do a PhD in AI. Yeah. That's really all I was looking for and preferably overseas. And I um, stumbled on to the University of Edinburgh. AI was kind of born. So they still had a department of AI back then. And um, there was a, someone who was looking for a PhD, someone to do a PhD in robotics. I was like, yeah, that could be challenging. I didn't have an interest in robotics up to then, but knowing how much data a robot senses with all its senses and how messy that data is, that drew me to going there because I knew it would be a challenge. Some real messy, real world data to play with and to do some AI. That's why I did it. Well, how did you end up picking that university and that supervisor or there was an, an opportunity that's yeah right. there was an uh, opening yeah. so yeah. i liked edinburgh i heard no about way. it i was visiting there my parents were living in the uk at the time as well so it was kind of nice to be close with them again it was clear that edinburgh was one of the leaders in ai research yeah as i said I had, the opportunity was there there was a lecture uh, one of the researcher there wanted a student to start in this area of robotics and it sounded good so i i went for it and what was your specific topic during your PC? It was in an area called social learning, which is like applying machine learning to robotics inspired by social learning in biology. So trying to mimic how humans and other animals learn by being in a social environment. There's other people in the environment that are more experienced than them. That was kind of the basic idea. So yeah. and the idea here with robotics is that instead of programming engineering to the robot what to do at different times, you give it the capability to learn, to observe other things around it, whether they're a human or a like a robot teacher. You train it to do basic tasks by yeah. observing the teacher. And so it knows how to observe the teacher and how to copy, how to imitate the teacher. And while it's imitating, in the background, you've got the machine learning algorithms that are associating my environment with what I'm doing as a result of imitating. And so the next time I'm in, in the environment again, under the same conditions, without the teacher, I know what to do. I know what actions to take. I mean, that's how humans learn, by observing. Yeah. That's how animals learn. So that research team was very heavily influenced by biological systems. So there's quite a few projects in the team around how to apply how animals learn and behave to robotics. So there's lots of, quite a wow. few interesting projects there. It was, it was fun. So I got to learn a bit about biology, psychology as well while I was at it. That's right. Yeah. Pretty advanced, actually. Like, when was this? So this was in the, at the end of the 90s. So 19. Yeah. Really advanced. Yeah, especially to combine sort of vision, translating that to the data, machine learning, and then applying it back in, in similar settings. Did you run any experiments? Uh, yeah. That time? What, what was yeah, that? I did. Um, so there were some simulated experiments and some physical experiments. So the department had a robotics lab with technicians and engineers, and they had uh, three or four or five robots. And so the experiments were pretty basic. Even though we had the 
robots the hard way, they still weren't as, as capable as they are today. So things like avoiding obstacles, trying to find light sources, food. Some of the more advanced labs were in other countries were doing more advanced experiments like playing drums and juggling balls. They're the kind of tasks that people were looking at back then. So it was good. We had a lab with these robots and we, we could set up experiments, watch the robots move around and record things and do the research. That's great. Yeah. And what did that period of your PhD, what did, did it teach you that helped you throughout your career? Have yeah. there been points in your career that you look back and go, yeah. I'm really glad I did yeah. that because I got this. What would some of those things be? The main ones are being independent. So as a PhD, it's a minimum of three years. Some people take longer. Mine took five of it's just you. You have teammates, colleagues working on their project and you put your supervisor, but it's largely just you on the project. It's your PhD. So it definitely teaches you to be independent, to time manage, project manage. You're coming into it. A lot of people straight out of uni, they don't have those skills. So yeah. That's a big one. And the other one is to be critical. It's probably the better one, the more, more important one. To be critical, to think critically, not just of other people's work, but your own work, which is difficult. That is a skill. I think it's one of the main benefits of doing a PhD. Of course, if you want to become an academic, you have to do a PhD. Mm. But if you don't, these are some of the skills that you carry through regardless of where you go. That's the two main ones that I look at. That's really good. And once you completed your PhD, where did you go? So then I moved back to Australia to do some more research. But then towards the end of the PhD, I, I kind of started to suspect that academia is not for me. And so... Why, why was that? Sorry. Yeah, sure. This is something that I talk to a lot of academics and PhDs about that I recruit. Academia is all about innovation. So if you're not advancing the field, you can't survive. And I realized that my passion wasn't necessarily in inventing new things, but rather in applying solutions to interesting problems. That was the main insight, really. And that's what I say to people. That's the main differentiator. There's others, but that's the main one. It's very competitive and it takes a long time to be rewarded. So that's the life true. cycle is quite long, whether you know, it's having a paper published or having a grant approved. Often you get recognition for work you did two years ago or six months ago, if you're lucky. And it's quite difficult to keep yourself motivated like that. As I said, at that time, I started to suspect that. And I thought, okay, I'm, I don't feel the confidence to go into business. So I'll um, get a research position that has some kind of industry element to it. A, to give me more confidence that I can do it and be some more employable at the end of it. So I, I took a research position at Monash University in uh, natural language processing. Um, and it was an industry, like a project that's done in collaboration with industry. So the business partner there was HP. And we did some work on trying to automate email interaction in their call center. It was you know, a very interesting project Yeah, that had that kind of real world connection. So I did that for a few years. And how were you going about Solving that problem back then, what did the approach look like? We kind of focused on the 80-20 rule where 80% of the questions are the same or variations of the same thing and there's book standard answers to them. So you don't need a human to provide those answers. You can automate that. The more difficult questions, you need the human for. So there's various techniques in NLP for doing this kind of thing. It's called question-answer techniques where you're kind of, today, you know, Google does this very well. You have a dialogue with someone where you answer a question. You have a take turns answering, asking and answering questions. Back then, of course, that wasn't there yet. So, wow. yeah, we basically kind of broke down the emails into sentences. Mm -hmm. So they were the, the atomic units of information. And then you can model when there's certain words in the question, we tend to see these sentences come up in the answer. Because we had a big corpus of emails from going back 
five years or so. And so you can see when these emails are submitted by users, these are the responses they get from the call center mm -hmm. because they do a lot of copy paste mm -hmm. as well, right? So there's a very strong signal in that, that kind of data. So there was, um, yeah, again, machine learning applied to text where you predict from keywords what should be the answers. Sounds a lot like search, doesn't it? Yeah. This is very similar, but applied in a very specific domain. That's great. Um, how long yeah. did you do that? So that was about three years. You know, it's a good example of, you know, what I was talking about earlier about the rewards are slow. Yeah. So we couldn't get papers published most of my time in that job. And just when I left, literally when I left, everything started to come through. So we had, you know, a good journal paper approved, some good, really top conferences. And I actually had to go to some of those conferences after I'd already left the job. Yeah. So it was nice to get the recognition at the end, but three know, years um, later. Yeah. So that was another key key insight for me that it's not, not the place for me. Yeah. Um, but it was fun. Well, was Interesting that, there, that the incentives are so strange because it is super competitive yeah. to become a, a researcher, an academic, and then super slow rewards and recognition. Yeah. Interesting. But very self-aware of you to pick up on that signal so early on and yeah. to take steps towards something and, different. And again, it's that drive to solve problems as opposed to innovate solutions, does that make sense? I realized my passion was in solving problems using data, using machine learning. The problems didn't have to be necessarily difficult. And the solutions didn't necessarily need to be advanced. It's actually one of the key learnings I've made in my career after that in business. Yeah. That often the value that you bring to an organization is in solving pretty basic problems. But you solve them and you get the recognition straight away because you, the business sees the value and acts on it. That's right. Immediately and rewards you for it. Yeah. Whether, yeah. It's through feedback or through obviously opportunity. It's very satisfying. Yeah. Correct, because you get to see the impact of your work quickly. Yeah. <laughs> what are your views on the industry today, how those two sides are focused on by most people? And by the two sides, I, I mean the research innovation piece of creating new things versus the applied side of solving problems with an existing toolkit, where do you see most of the focus in the people working today? And mm. what are your views on the, yeah. on the two competing sides? I think they're much more aligned these yeah. days. Yeah, definitely. Compared to back then, much more aligned. Now we're seeing the two communities interact with each other much more. I think the birth of data science as a term has done wonders in that space because it's giving young researchers a job to go to that's not in academia, that's mm. not research, but that is appealing to them. So I remember when I was looking to leave academia, I actually didn't know how to search for a job. I actually didn't know what to put in the search. Yeah. What do I put in? I'm not going to put in machine learning. That's not going to produce anything. So back then it was analytics. That was yeah. what you looked for. And I don't think it's as appealing to a young researcher as data scientist. The word science, it's there for a reason. It's not just fancy words because the roles have changed as well. There's much more openness, I think, in organizations to do research, to do the science. It's brought the two communities much closer together. And then other things followed, like informal community networking events, meetups. You see the two communities now interact so seamlessly compared to before. And not just the young researchers, but even the experienced academics, I think, are more wanting to go to these events and interact with industry folk. There's more of a common language and... I think organizations are opening up to data science research than before. Even things like the fact that R is used in business. Because R has been around for a long, long time in academia. It's a tool that businesses use. Python, right, the same thing. So all these things are now enabling this alignment, much closer alignment between the two communities, which is great. It's really good. That's really good. And how did you find your transition from research into industry? Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it was great. It was very smooth. I think to some extent, 
it's the job that I ended up in had a lot to do with it. So my boss was um, very open to having someone like me there. They saw the value of analytics, that's what it was called then. It was a small enough company that you could do a few different things in different ways. So it made my transition easier. And all the reasons, all the suspicions that I had were confirmed that I'm much more satisfied being in an environment where I'm not necessarily inventing new things, but I'm solving problems, real problems with my skills and with the tools that I know about. But the one thing that I learned, you know, pretty quickly was to embrace simplicity. It's one of the main pieces of advice I give to data scientists. Embrace simplicity or go to academia. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, to, to the point where in my first job, I was mainly using Excel. It hurt to start with, but... I embraced it. I was able to deliver value really quickly and significantly just using Excel. That's amazing. Yeah. That's actually a really good example of focusing on simplicity. Do you have any other examples of when you've coached somebody or mentored somebody through, helped them get through a problem where they were not focusing on simplicity and you helped them sort of get there to see what a simpler solution could look like? Or what is the conversation that you would have with somebody that's getting stuck in the complexity to look to the simplicity? I think later on, you know, I moved on from Excel and did a lot of work in SQL and SQL mm -hmm. and um, even building some basic models in SQL. And you would get a young scientist wanting to use R. So mm -hmm. R was becoming the thing back then. And I had yeah quite a few conversations along the lines of, I want you to try it first in SQL before you have to go to R. I don't mind using R if you need to, but if we can, let's keep it, let's keep it simple. Let's keep it in database where everything yeah. is and we can productionize more easily and where other people can look at your code and extend it without having to know R. Because many of the problems could be solved in SQL, including linear regression. You can code it in SQL. Yeah, we had quite a few. Some of my favorite models are very basic SQL models um, that I've built, such as you know, we had a model to predict the gender from someone's first name, because it's important. Gender is a very good signal modeling. We can't always ask the customer what their gender is, but we have many, many customers, thousands over the years who, for whom we do know their gender and their name. So we've come across most names and know their gender. It's literally a model that scores every name by all the genders that it's seen. It's a very basic probability model. Very, very basic, but yeah. very powerful, but all in SQL with a real model behind it. So, and That's there's great. a couple of others, you know, where the value was quick and mm. significant, but with basic techniques. It's difficult sometimes, I think, for data scientists to embrace simplicity. Yeah. I think they want to work on the advanced stuff. Yeah, you really need to be clear about your motivations, what, what drives you, are you in the right place? That's right. And what type of outcomes make you happy, get you excited? You mentioned that your first job was in a small business. What do you think about that? About the fact that it was a small business? Did it have any advantages that prepared you, that gave you skills that you used later in your career? And what would be some of those? Yeah. I think the advantages are it's easier to get stuff done and it's easier to influence. So I was in a role where my manager was reporting to the CEO and the office was still pretty small. I got to interact with the CEO on a regular basis and with all the other key executives and stakeholders. So it definitely taught me about influencing and just basic stakeholder skills. And being my first job, it taught me about how to be a professional in business as opposed to in in a research environment. So just basic communication skills and interaction, just interaction skills. When you're in research, you're surrounded by people who are equally kind of qualified and equally minded and have similar skills. Whereas in business, of course, you've got your media team, but you need to interact with other teams that are, of course, very widely ranging in their skills and uh, qualifications and the type of work that they do. So it taught me how to work together with others, complement the different skill sets. And then it taught me you know, the basics of data. In research, you tend to get clean data, right? Yeah. Good toy data sets. So it taught me 
that first job taught me the what's really out there. Yeah. The challenges of dirty data, of messy, unstructured, having to know the business process before you can really make sense of the data. That's a huge one. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that I definitely carry through the rest of my career. You need to understand what's generated that data. If possible, go to that place where the data is generated and be there and see, see how it's generated. See the process, the business process that's generating it, and then have the relationships with other stakeholders who know about different parts of the organization, how, they, how it works. And was there development, I don't know if opportunities is the right word, but what I'm trying to get to is the fact that you had direct access with executives, with the CEO, that immediately lifts anyone's level of thinking, of professional thinking, that you'd be looking at a business in a more holistic level. Did you feel at the time, and I'm wondering because it was your first job and you straight away had access with executives or direct access to executives. At the time, did you feel that you were getting a higher level perspective over business and business thinking compared to being sort of a smaller part of a bigger team? I don't think I realized it at the time, but in retrospect, yeah, definitely. But I actually, it actually had the opposite effect on me. I actually felt like it was all happening too fast because I didn't have confidence in my technical skills at that time. Right. Even though you know, I'd done the PhD, I'd done the research, I didn't have the confidence in my technical ability to perform in a business. And I was promoted because my manager left. I was promoted pretty soon after, like a year after, to be the manager of the team. And I didn't like it. I actually left that job to take a step down. I felt I needed to be more in the weeds, more in the weeds for longer before I can take that step. <laughs> I'm so impressed, very self-aware and very true to yourself. And I've seen later on in my career, I've seen other people make those mistakes too. Especially in my team, there have been teams that I've been building, warning people from doing that, from climbing too quickly. Yes. Uh, it's tempting, of course, when the opportunity is there. You, so you understand why. There's plenty of time to be a manager, to be a manager, an executive. You've got your whole career ahead of you. Yeah. Um, it's important to be confident in your technical skills and also to have fun. That's why we're here, right? We enjoy the technical part of it more. And so enjoy those years. Don't rush. I've had to have this conversation quite a few times with people I've then since then mentored and managed. That is so great. That's such yeah. a great perspective. What type of things should people aim to develop during those years seen as like in the weeds or yeah. the technical work uh, that they're allowed to have this fun? What things should they be thinking about developing then that will help them later in their career as they progress into management and, and hire? Definitely working directly with the data, the source. Get as close as possible to the source of the data so you understand the issues of data. Because ultimately, that's what gets in the way of outcomes is getting in the, another 80-20. 80% of the time you spend cleaning up data, getting it ready for analysis, modeling, reporting. If you don't have a, a real appreciation of it, you're not going to lead data science teams effectively because you'll keep getting frustrated about why is it taking so long or why is this, you said this would happen this way, ended up going another way. So until you really see the data that you even know what to ask sometimes. So having a, spend quite a few years with the raw data as close as possible to the source, understanding the issues of dealing with real data. So things like database skills data manipulation skills, SQL, of course, definitely. In those first two or three years, that's all I did is SQL. I actually learned SQL on the job. And that's pretty much all I did. I was fortunate I had someone to learn from who was amazing. It's just thinking about how data moves around, what can go wrong along the way. You know the endpoint. So you know you want to build a model or you want to show some insights. So you know there's going to be an input and output. But for you to draw correct conclusions, you need to be responsible with how you get there. You have that responsibility because you are the one who's touching the data. It's no good saying, oh, but the website broke or the CRM broke. It's not my fault. This field usually says M 
for mail and suddenly it said mail or, yeah. or one, one yeah. yeah it's up to you to ensure that these things are accounted for those are the things you really need to focus on initially yeah to get the experience on what could go wrong building that input as you were saying exactly yeah. so that when you're looking for patterns of how they predict the output mm. you can be confident about drew the right patterns out the right signal and that your predictors predictive models are reliable or that your insights the process of generating and sharing insights with the business is reliable Correct. That philosophy, I can very clearly see it, how it has made you a much better manager than people who don't do that. Yeah. Because then you're able to help the team. The team can leverage your experience of years of identifying and working through those types of issues that yeah. you can feed that back. But then yeah. as because you understand it, the yeah. process and the problems, as new ones come up from your team, you're able to yeah. take yeah. those with you. Yeah, you know what to look for. That's the only way. You know what to look for and you know to make sure that they have looked at everything that needs to be looked at. Yeah. They've got the skills. They're asking the right questions. They're being inquisitive enough of the data in the right ways that they haven't missed it. That's really great. How did you feel in those early days of your working career after leaving academia? How did you feel about the simplicity of the work back then? What I'm thinking is you came out of a PhD in AI and robotics to work a few years on NLP back then, obviously yeah. very advanced, yeah. and then going into a job that was around Excel yeah. and then SQL. At the time, how did you feel yeah. about that transition? Initially, it definitely it hurt quite a lot that I, I wanted to build the machine learning. I wanted to predict things and then show the company, hey, look, we can predict these things and therefore take action, adapt, personalize the experience, whatever it was. And I, you know, deep inside, that's what I love. I love machine learning. I love using data and clever programming to use what's happened in the past to predict what's going to happen. It's ultimately my passion. And so I was looking for all these opportunities to apply machine learning, but there was there were low-hanging fruits right there, everywhere that had nothing to do with machine learning. And I talked about embracing the simplicity. I learned to embrace simplicity because I realized I had other passions, which were just using data. I thought my passion was using machine learning to solve problems. My, my passion was using data to solve problems. So there's lots of ways to use data to solve problems that aren't the advanced machine learning. I was passionate about that, about those areas, but it took me a while to realize it, to admit that to myself. Yeah. And again, I went back to the recognition that you get recognized quickly for those things because you're adding value to your time. The low-hanging fruits are there. And so you quickly and, and significantly provide value. It's rewarding when people recognize it. It's, it feels good. Yes. It feels good. That makes so much sense. So the reason why I was asking, I was curious why you made the time and the space for that period. And I was wondering if it was patience or something else. And it sounds like it's because you're results oriented. So the fact that you were doing this work that it can be seen as like, yes, on the simple end, but you're doing this work and you're getting the satisfaction from the results that that generated the positive feedback loop. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the key difference if someone wants to choose between being in business or being in research. Some people thrive from innovation, from coming up with new solutions, new techniques, which is fine. We need those people. Very right. Whereas others find a more kind of, yeah, that kind of results driven there. Find the satisfaction from just solving problems every day, simple problems, or maybe not simple problems, but using simple solutions and making a difference, making yeah. a difference in the yeah. organization where yeah. they are. Now, in the background, of course, I was still hoping to eventually be doing more of the advanced stuff too. I and mean, I kind of let it happen organically. But I quickly realized also that businesses in Australia weren't at that level of maturity yet anyway. There's very few places that were doing this stuff. So I realized I, had to, I have to be patient and just kind of wait for it to happen and try to still looking for opportunities to identify areas where machine learning could be used, but not let it get to me, not religiously and not let it get to me if I couldn't find it. And that worked.
Yeah, my next step after I took that step down was to join an organization that was very mature. So a company called iSelect here mm -hmm. in Australia, we have a digitally focused comparison company, a lot of data, lots of customers, and the awareness was there before I got there. It was obvious to me. I wasn't actually looking. I was quite happy where I was. I wasn't really looking for a job. At the time, I met Tony Lang, who was running the team at the time. I met yeah. him at a, at a networking event and he painted a pretty good picture of what they're doing. He's like, yeah, I want to be there. Because the other thing I learned, the previous job was that if you're working in a place that doesn't really want you, it doesn't really want data science because they don't understand it. They're not really sure what their value is. You just spend your time selling. My boss there was a lot of her time was selling the value in the previous role. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a salesperson. That's another decision I made back then was to not put myself in that situation if I can avoid it, to be in a place where I have to sell the value of analytics. So when I learned about what they do with iSelect and how advanced the awareness is, I had to go there. And yeah, they were already doing a bit of machine learning. Then and how old was iSelect? iSelect was about 10 years. 10 years. And the analytics data science team? Two people. And how long since it had been established? About two years. Yeah. So I came in, yeah, it was about yeah. a year, maybe a year or two old, and they were already able to implement a couple of models and business one and more. So um, interesting. And in terms of the trajectory of the organization, what made that organization different? Was there people that were selling early on in the organization's life or were people able to get value from data science or machine learning when the team started? What do you think were some of the factors that led to that organization having a high level of maturity with their analytics team? They were always very mature from a digital perspective. And the person founded it, he had an engineering background. I think he just stumbled onto analytics and he realized he was just blown away by the idea, the concept. That kind of engineering thinking helped. Yes. Um, so he thought he'd give it a go and he got one person. They showed the value. It was, it was built very organically using open source and kind of just basic implementations without having to spend too much money on software and, and too many people to begin with. It was very organic. Just showing the value with one model, then another one, getting another person in the team. Ultimately, it was born by the founder just hearing about it, yeah. reading about it, and believing in it. And then once you got the person at the top, as we've heard many times before, if it starts at the top, yeah. it's a good place. Yes. Needs to start at the top. 100%. Very interesting. And definitely the fact that it was a, a digital native, really, mm. like a digital business would help. But obviously, it was a digital business because of the, the mindset of the people who started it as well. Really interesting. And between that job that you got to management and left, and after that, when was the next time that you went up to management? So I was at that job for three years. And when I moved to iSelect, yeah. it wasn't management. It was a senior, senior yeah. role, but not management. And I was there two years. I suppose I started to manage some of the junior staff. Mm -hmm. And then my, my boss left, Tony left, and I took over the team. So maybe about all up five years between that first decision to step down and then to get back to it. Then I felt ready. Five years of solid technical experience, hands-on, sitting at the computer, getting a back backache, yeah. you know, <laughs> not really speaking to many people. But yeah. just hands-on, solid, technical, hands-dirty with a dirty data, data issues, that experience of chasing up IT, mm. where's, where's the data, why is it not doing this or that, and seeing the data sort to the end of the life cycle of a model end-to-end. -end. A solid five years of that, I felt ready to, now I can lead function because I know about the issues. So interesting. And there's a few things that are 
particularly interesting. One that I'm really curious about is the, the, the vision and the awareness that you had of looking at what managers do and what different types of managers are like or maybe more specifically, what different flavors of management there are and what skills are required for those. So the fact that during those five years of doing the technical work, that during that time, you're able to pinpoint that there's some organizations that need a salesperson in that analytics lead Mm. role so they can educate and others that need somebody who is driving results. Where do you think that vision or that awareness or that focus came from? How were you aware during that time, doing the technical work? How were you aware enough to see those distinctions, those different flavors of of managers and what's required? There's a very simple answer for that, which is stay connected to the community. Be involved with the community because that's how you hear the different perspectives. But that's how you hear about what's happening everywhere else. And one of your initial speakers, Eugene Dubosarski, was a big mentor of mine at yeah. the time and really influenced a lot of my thinking back yeah. then. He'd already gone through a long journey, articulated, helped to articulate for me how different businesses operate, those levels of maturity. I think he's still doing that today. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, he's definitely helped me in my journey a lot. And it's not one person. It's You go to events yes. and you speak to people. It's so, so important. Of course, networking is important to get jobs, but that's one part of it. It's equally important for this raising that those levels of awareness and vision, as you say, to see the full, the bigger picture. You can only observe as much in the current company organization mm-hmm. that you're at. That's right. In your current role. And you need to be observant. To complete the picture, you, you have to go outside. And data science communities tend to be pretty small mm-hmm. and pretty tight. I think it's quite easy for us to network and to be a community. So it's definitely another one major piece of advice I give to data scientists. Stay connected to your community and And also people in our space are really nice yeah are really open always willing to have a chat and to help and provide advice and it's a a forum where you can get advanced you can get complex talk about complex and advanced yeah solutions and implementations with people who want to you don't have to simplify correct it's just a nice forum and what did that look like for you that that connection to the community i assume this was at least in part it would have been before meetup yeah, well, it prompted me to create the meetups. Yeah. And so, again, Eugene started the culture in Sydney. And I remember he started the R user group. And I remember talking to him and saying, would you mind creating a um, video link? Because I, I want to be part of it. Yeah. He said to me, oh, good, interesting idea. I'll, I'll have a look. But why don't you start your own meetup? Love <laughs> it. I love it. So I did. So I, I started the R user group meetup. And then after that, the data science meetup uh, in Melbourne. Because it was, I mean, there were some, there, there were forums to network, but different. They were more, more formal, a bit more kind of at, at the high end of a professional scale, more of the management and um, you know, certain kinds of industries. Whereas it, we didn't have the meetup, it didn't really exist back then. That kind of more casual, open to anyone environment where you could just rock up in a jeans and t-shirt, have some pizza, and then meet people, like-minded people from anywhere, any industry or any kind of organization, any level, both business and academia. So we had students and lecturers, business managers and analytics professionals, anyone also. That's right. And I think it really helped to facilitate those um, forums for people to be in touch with the community. Totally agree. And some of the, as in the meetups that you started there, they've been, as a meetup, they've been so successful, but they've also been so helpful and so instrumental to so many people in the community. From your perspective, what makes a good meetup? Have you crafted that cocktail over over the years? 
there's not that much to it. Find a venue for people to get together that feels safe. Anyone can feel confident to turn up at that venue. And it helps to have beer. Definitely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and food. Yeah. Definitely. But, you know, we didn't always. The meetup.com concept, I think, makes it available to people. It gives them that. It feels available, as yeah. in safe. If there's something that's come through there, you feel like, yeah, it's going to be casual and I'm not going to get judged or yeah. I won't feel like I'm competing or I won't feel like I'm necessarily being assessed or that I'm potentially interacting with the employers. Therefore, I have to be on my best behavior. It's definitely more casual. And I don't think I created that. I think that's just using the meetup.com concept, finding a venue, finding speakers, providing pizzas and beers. Yeah. And at the event, just being very, very honest and genuine about why you're there, what the forum is about. And it just takes care of itself. I was pretty blown away by their response to, yeah. to both, both of the meetups. Still am. I was very blown away. So clearly it was needed. There was a market for it. I think it's definitely helped a lot of people make connections. You don't necessarily go when you're looking for a job. You go to make connections. Down the track, it might end up in a job. Yeah. It might end up in a collaboration. It might not end up in anything. But you're making friends. and It's fun. Find environment. You learn about new algorithms, new techniques. You hear about how people are solving problems that you're facing in a casual setting. After a few years, we created some add-ons to the, the normal concept of a meetup, such as an internship program, a hackathon, what we call datathon, um, yeah. a conference. So we kind of added bits to it. Um, I can't take all the credit. There's a very busy guy in Melbourne called Phil Briley, <laughs> who does a lot of the work. We're very lucky to have him. And I know that yeah, the community is much better off with him running a lot of this stuff. It's always with the community in mind. How do we help the community? That's really good. Yeah. And the add-ons, it's fantastic because so many people have gotten so much value from the add-ons. And I know that for myself that in the past job, I built my entire team from the internship process of the Data Science Melbourne meetup mm. and and found it fantastic as a process and very easy to find great people. Where did the idea for the add-ons come from? Just from issues that I was having myself. It's the same as you. I was struggling to build my team. And I think I accidentally had an intern once. Yeah. I, someone's son wanted yeah. some experience. Yeah. I realized, wow, this, there's something in this. Not just for me, but for the community. It's a good model. I think it's a good model. Let's, let's try it out. And so it was like a bottom-up thing. Yeah, I had a problem that needed to be solved. And I, luckily also, I select was a very supportive of the meetup. We're willing to help you know, financially and, and, and also to, to help attend events and, and promote the program, the internship program. We use it ourselves. Yeah. And we still use it. And I think it also addresses that interplay between academia and business very, very well. I think it facilitated really well. And so many of my interns were data scientists wanting to just finish the PhD or a master's or an undergraduate, maybe have done some research already mm. for a few years. And we're wondering whether they actually want to make the same transition like I did, move into business. Yeah, it facilitates that kind of transition for both sides really well. It minimizes the risk for both sides gives both sides a, a test environment. You set it up as a internship, you know, six months, 12 months, whatever it is. If it works out, you've got a bench to recruit from. That's right. Someone who's proven themselves. So much talk has been about, oh, we want as many PhDs as possible. And I actually, before I had the internship program, I was scared of PhDs. Even though I was one myself. Yeah. <laughs> I would look at them very carefully, mm. very cautiously. For the same, the reasons we've already talked about. You know, are you really wanting to leave research for the right reasons? Often they're not sure, you're not sure. So here we go. Let's give it a go. Let's test it. And so you actually can end up with PhDs, masters, well-educated, qualified data scientists who have proven themselves that they can integrate into a business. In other words, they've learned to embrace simplicity and um, have recognized that it's an environment that they can be satisfied in, they enjoy. That's right. I do have to say, on I really admire the approach that you take that when you have a 
problem or a need, you solve it for the community. That is fantastic. So I know that on behalf of the community, I want to say thank you because that's, that's made all those connections between people possible, those job interactions, those project collaborations, those learnings and furthering your career, that ability to see the contrast across different styles of managers. That is coming out from definitely you and Phil and people like you guys. When you have a need, for yourself, solve it for the community. So yeah, thank you. That's outstanding. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. No, no, no. 100%. There's been a lot of people along the way who have helped because people want it. It doesn't take much to bring people together. Yeah. Often you need to push it a bit. Yeah, definitely. And let's go back to the time when you went back to management in your career. You said that at that time you felt ready. What gave you that feeling? It's having the battle wounds of working with data. You know, I've heard you talk about the imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, so I felt like I, I know my stuff now. I know what I'm talking about now. I know what the issues are and what's possible too. Yeah. And I've seen some of the difficulties that my predecessors have had before me. And uh, I'm ready to give it a go. Now, it helped that I was in a safe environment because I'd already been there for two, two years. I knew the stakeholders and I knew that I was in a company that wants me, as in they want data science. Of course. I had the relationships. So much about being a leader is the relationships, stakeholders. And so I knew that I could focus on learning how to be a leader because I didn't need to spend as much time on learning about the people around me, mm. about developing their relationships because they were already quite developed. So I think if I was to go into a, a completely new company in that role, it would have been a different story. But as I said, I was in a regarded safe environment for that kind of learning yeah. for me to learn how to be a leader, a manager, having the, the battle wounds and the learnings from my predecessor. And what was that journey of learning how to be a leader and manager? Mm. What was that, that I'm still on it. for you? I'm still on it. Yeah. <laughs> and how has it been? How was the, the early days? Um, Full of challenges, different kinds of challenges. Naturally, as data scientists, we prefer the technical. We prefer to interact with computers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not with people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> We're more comfortable. So it, it definitely takes you out of your comfort zone. Even in a place like Isolate where there wasn't that much selling, you are selling. You are influencing. You're having to show the value constantly. And you're having to learn how to interact with stakeholders, with senior management, with executives, and how to be a manager too. I think get the most out of your team, be efficient. When you're facing the challenges of a, it's not natural. You know, all the soft skills that are required don't come naturally to us. Yeah. Yeah. B, we need them all, I think, than most functions because we're so ill understood. Yes. Data science is not very well understood. And so it's even more important that you're able to educate, show the value all the time to everyone. So yeah, I struggled with that. Even though I had the guy at the top who totally yeah. was supportive. Um, and at times I didn't realize that I still needed to sell the value to the rest of the organization. I kind of took it for granted a bit. I think it's one of probably my biggest learning from being in that environment yeah. is to never stop selling mm. and educating business, mm. even if you think you already have. Yeah. I think in Australia, it's a, an unusual problem to have because most organizations you are, you're selling to an audience that doesn't understand it, doesn't see the, know the value. So doing that first sale job, I was more in an environment where the sale, the first sale was done. It was more about maintaining it. As the stakeholders came and went, you constantly have to be doing it. It's not what you're comfortable with and it's not what you enjoy necessarily. That's right. Um, and were there particular points that gave you that signal? Did you get to a particular fork in the road that you said, ah, I should have been selling more? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, there's one time um, another one of your previous guests, Scott Wilson, who was a CEO of yeah. Select for a couple of years. He also was absolutely sold on the on the message and was always very supportive. And one point in time, he said to me, "You know, your key stakeholders don't really understand what you do. I'm going to set up a meeting with me and them and you in a room, and just there's a, a deck, a PowerPoint presentation that you've used before. Just use that show to them. Just sit around a boardroom table, and I presented for an hour, and I could see it in their faces, in their eyes, when the, the penny dropped, and they suddenly they're like, "Oh, right, yes." That makes sense. We get it. And um, I was amazed. I'd been working with some of these people for by then for two or three years. Yeah. I was amazed. That penny hadn't dropped previously already. Yes. So Scott really helped me with that to improve the brand, the team, and the function. It made me realize that you can't take it for granted. I just assumed people just understood because by then, data science was part of the furniture. I said, yeah. For a long time. I just assumed that everyone understood the basics. Obviously, not the complexities, but the basics. But no. So you, interesting. Yeah. You can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> so then taking that time as an example. So in that hour and in your PowerPoint presentation, were you covering some of the basics? Things that... Yeah, the basics of some of the tools that we'd already built by then that had some machine learning, some predictive models, optimization models. And just at a high level, it's, it's a standard deck that I used when we had new starters in a team or when I was presenting to the industry or to investors, but I hadn't presented it to many of my key stakeholders. Yes. Or taking the time to educate them along the way. You really need to invest in the key relationships and not just the connections themselves, but the education. You know, you prefer to be on the tools. As a, as, a, as, a tools, yeah. Yeah. as a leader, you, you have to make that realization that you can't be on the tools as much or at all sometimes. And you have to focus all your energy and time on, on the selling, the relationships, the influencing. And I really like that you said focus on not only on the connection, but on the education mm. as well. Mm. Really want to dive a little bit deeper into that. What are the benefits that you've seen of building the connection side? Because sometimes people approach it as we're at work. This is a business relationship. We just need to sit down and, you know, get, get stuff done quickly. What is your philosophy? What is your views on, on that? You chose that word connection and education. How do you approach those two sides of the relationship and the connection yeah. side? Look, I think they're very important. The yeah. relationships, I don't agree with the other approach. It's just business. Now, in my experience, relationships have made a difference. So I was at Isolate for about seven years and I've seen many different org structures, organizational structures. And I've learned that there's not one right organizational structure. There's quite a few that work and lots that don't work, but quite a few that work. It's more about the people and the relationships than about the org chart. A lot of people say, no, we can't make this work because IT reports to someone else. So it's never going to work. I think that's just hiding from the challenge of connections. If you have the right relationships, you can make anything work. Obviously, it's harder in bigger organizations than smaller ones. Because big organizations, often when you've got the, the physical limitation of space in different locations, it's more challenging. But in my experience, if you have the right relationship, you can get some good stuff done. You can overcome a lot of obstacles. Just going over and speaking to someone as opposed to a, a nasty email often yeah. will identify actually where we are on the same page. It's just that we didn't understand each other, which you wouldn't uncover in an email, but you would in a conversation. And if you have that connection, the other person is more willing for you to educate them what you're trying to. Because again, it, data science as a field is, um, it's still not very well understood. It moves around different parts of the organization. Is it, what is it? Finance? Is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it central? Or is it distributed? Is it IT? Not. And because of those ambiguities, it, tensions get created and territorial wars. Um, yes. You know what finance is and what HR is or legal, but when you don't know exactly what data science is or where it should be, it creates tension points. <laughs> There's only, in my mind, the only way to solve it is by working on the relationships of the key people that can 
the difference. And uh, so I've, I've always focused. I struggle like many other data scientists in that space because the soft skills don't come naturally to us. I've got a, another piece of advice is get external help. Just be coached on this stuff. Find material. There's lots of good stuff out there to help. That's really good advice. And what are some of the ways that you build those relationships, those connections? Mm. You, anyways, what, what are some yeah, ways no, that, you, that um, you would do? It, it kind of depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. Lots of different ways. You know, it could be a weekly, monthly coffee that's in the calendar or something more ad hoc and making the effort to go over and joke around and comment about something, invite, invite people to stuff. There's the basic things like that, and then there's how do you deal with difficult situations where this is where that's more the areas where you might want to get some help, some tools to deal with those situations. Definitely, I don't think that this, that's not unique to data science, but for the reasons I mentioned earlier, we tend to find ourselves in, in those tension points more because our field is less understood and our location in the organization is ambiguous, and we're naturally not very good at the soft skills. A lot of this stuff is generic, basic communication, influencing interaction skills. I agree. Please tell me if I'm wrong here. It sounds like as a general approach, you focus on investing in the relationship early and creating that connection where you have kind of like some goodwill in the bank with the person and that then they feel like you are on their side. You're both in the same team. And if it does get bumpy at times or if there is a tough conversation, mm. they immediately start from the point of view of you was looking after me. We're in the same team rather than on developing like approaches of communication or the tool side mm. that sometimes for example sometimes people take quite a formal approach mm. in their discussion or yeah. they break when they need to break tough news to somebody yeah. that sometimes they become very methodical very formal yeah. it seems to me that you're in the former camp rather than the latter is that is that ah, yeah definitely yeah. i think people are people so what i mean by that <laughs> we're all very similar in our fears and ambitions my underlying operating assumption is that everyone turns up at a business are there for the right reasons and with the best intentions yeah. they want to make the business succeed of course there are people who have their own agendas mm. and they play political games and they're there and it's very hard to do anything then but you can't assume that they're doing that that's been my philosophy you have to assume that people are there for good intention and if there's conflict often it's to do with communication, a breakdown in communication as opposed to intention. By having genuine relationships, you can overcome those uh, communication breakages. You need to recognize that the other person is not that different to you in terms of what, what drives them, what, what makes them stressed, scared, happy, excited. Put yourself in their shoes. Nine times out of ten, that solves it. That resolves the conflict. And that's all you can, the best you can aim for, I think, nine, nine times out of ten. And then just recognize that the other times, well, okay, it's going to be ugly. That is fantastic. From a rule of thumb perspective, it's difficult to get any higher benefit than nine out of ten times. But it's also, yeah, having that empathy is a yeah. great, great way to be and to approach and to start all relationships and develop yeah. relationships from that point of view. Yeah, it's an approach I take in life, not just at work. I think it's just part of who I am, my values. Really good. And before you were mentioning about org structures and that there's obviously lots of different approaches, some good ones, some not so good ones. What are some of the, the ones that you've seen or that you've developed that you like and that you, you've seen um, that they work well and benefited from in the past? I really don't think that there is that you can point to one or two or three that work because also they could work today but not tomorrow because it depends so much on the actual people that are in those org structures. Even the concept of a shared analytics service versus distributed, mm. where you have the analysts in the different parts of the business. We've tried the different ones yeah. at Isolate. 
and I've seen them in other places. Sometimes one works and sometimes the other. Even within the data science team, we've tried different things where you try and separate the different functions that the team provides, such as your more operational day-to-day -day consulting service versus the more R&D software engineering service. Do you have them separate or together? They feed off each other so much. Try different things. Still not convinced that one works more than the other. I don't actually have a, an answer. That's yeah, because this one or that one. Correct. Because um, there is no yeah. go-to one. Yeah. But for example, in the consulting versus R&D approach, how have you tackled that in the past? Have you had it shared as in split time from the same person or people or separate people that do yeah, each? I've had a few. So I've had the completely shared that everyone in the team does a bit of both and you just prioritize based on the work, who's good at what, who wants to learn what and what does the business need. I had a bit of a split where do one or the other and I had a rotation model as well where you kind of move between them. Again, there's not one that works, depends on lots of other things. Again, to me, the main thing is you can try, different approaches can work as long as ultimately business wants the function. They see the value in it and you've got almost the license to try different things. And then it doesn't really matter how you structure it as long as you provide the value and are able to run the team efficiently. In my experience, the shared model worked best, more because the people like the variety. The data scientists in the team, they like the variety. They feed off the learnings from each different areas. And that's when you get the best out of people you know, engaged and motivated. It presents challenges of prioritization and resource management. In terms of the kind of the well-being of the team, I found that having everyone available to do everything is the best. Especially when the company is smaller, the team is smaller, it's yeah. easier. Yeah. Of course, as you scale up, then those, those issues of prioritization and resource management come into it. But if you have the support of the business, then they kind of trust you to run the team the best way possible. And through that journey, how do you balance the development of people and giving them new challenges versus getting them to stick to their knitting mm. and spend more time on the things that they're good at or better than others where they can get fast results and have you had moments in your team where you're fluctuating in the time that's given to both of those areas and erring on one side or the other yeah well i definitely recognize early on that you need to have the right balance and yeah you need to experiment a bit with it before you get it right it's a bit different for each person too but of course you've got to be fair and have consistency so a couple of different ways one is the way that you allocate projects to people you make sure that yeah, you're not just exploiting people's strengths but you're recognizing that the development needs and development interests. So exposing them to work, even though you know it won't get done as fast. Having interns on board, constantly doing that because you have to give them work and but they're there to develop. You make conscious decisions all the time about this piece of work is going to take longer initially yes. by this person. So that's one way. The other is a little bit kind of more extreme, which is actually allocate time in the week for develop. So we had a, we had a thing called Kaggle time Friday afternoon where the team knew they could turn their emails up block their calendars, and they had permission to do some professional development. We called it Kaggle time. Many people wanted to do some Kaggling. It was a good way for them to do it together as well. Pick a problem and do it together nice. and learn some things. Yeah. But it wasn't just Kaggle. They could do whatever they want, as long as it's something to do with a skill they can bring back, but working on an area that just didn't have to be related. Of course, the team loved it, but there was actually strong value back to the company because people learned skills and learned about algorithms approaches that they then applied. We had a, one of our data engineers learned about Python this way. So he went from zero to being a Python developer just from what he learned at Kaggle time. And he learned about machine learning. Not enough to build models, but enough to be able to interact with the data scientists efficiently. So when they were handing him their models, he was able to have the conversations, the right conversations. So he learned about Python and he learned about machine learning this way. That's great. So that's just one example. 
it's a great way to maintain that balance yes. between development and just getting on with your job. While you're going. Really interesting. How much time would be allocated to carry time on a, on a weekly basis? Kind of varies, but between two and four hours on a Friday afternoon. Sometimes we would kind of aggregate it and do a, a hack day. So we would kind of skip a few and then do a hack day. When things are busy, you can't turn off your email. So yeah. there'll be times where it was, there was ups and downs. But as long as me as a team leader made it clear to them that they have my permission yeah. to do that, you know, knowing that they can, that made a difference. That's awesome. How big was the team when you went into management to leading it? When I joined, there's three of us yeah. and I took over maybe five and by the end, about 15. And how was that period of growth between five to 15? How was that period for you? Oh, full of learnings, both in terms of yeah, the stakeholder management, the business side of things, and also in terms of being a manager. Obviously, ups and downs and good challenges and mistakes, successes. But when I left, I was pretty happy with it. Very proud of it. A good combination of you know, data scientists, engineers, interns. Really good. Yeah. Also different levels, senior, mid, junior. I kind of learned pretty quickly to, it's important to create a senior layer underneath yeah. you to help run the team, especially at scale, to help so you can focus more on the strategy and the stakeholder that influencing because you can be less hands-on. That's right. With the team. And from a, from a team leadership or team management perspective, was there any particular or specific key lessons that you learned doing that job? Yep. So as one of them is that support layer, you know, yeah. as a senior layer. I learned pretty quickly to get the team involved with recruiting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So in the early days, I thought, no, no, that's my job. Yeah. It's nothing to do with them. And I recruited a couple of people and the existing people in the team resented me for it. I remember some pretty tough, intense times. Not necessarily because I didn't like the person, mm. but because they weren't involved, they weren't consulted. So I learned pretty quickly to involve the team. There's a point where now, or towards the end, when we were recruiting for interns, everyone in the team got involved with the interview and seeing their presentations, helping with the scoring and all that selection. Yeah. That was a key learning. And I think it's because data scientists that you look for are passionate people. That's the number one, I think, attribute that you look for. Because they're passionate, they're passionate about a lot of things, mm. not just about data science. You need to address that passion. Let that passion be translated. So that could be wanting to ideas heard, wanting to have an influence in the direction of where the, not just the team, but the company is going. You often have people who want to speak to the CEO one at a time with the executives, even though they might not be ready for it yet. But you get, you get that. Yeah, it's important to foster it. I think the other thing I learned is to kind of recognize what kind of leader you are. We spoke about this a bit earlier, to recognize other leaders, but recognize what kind of leader you are and have strategies that suit you and that are suited to each individual person that you're managing. You can't just make that stuff up. You need to allocate time to it, to have a strategy. It doesn't always have to be complicated or anything, but just to, to be mindful of this stuff. Think about this stuff and get external help. Yeah. Again, back to the lot. Try and find a mentor externally uh, and internally to help. What would be some of those strategies? What What does that look like? Recognizing what kind of personalities they are compared to you. Yeah. And when do those personalities clash? When do they work well together? There's various kind of methodologies out there to help with that kind of thing. One that I like is called DISC, D-I-S-C. You know what it? Can you tell us yeah, a bit about that? It recognizes four personality types. I'm not sure I'll remember which one stands for. So D, dominant. I is uh, influential. S is stability. And D is... Uh, no, C at the end. Uh, uh, sorry, C is uh, uh, co correct. Cautious. Cautious oh. and correct, yeah. Which is the analytical one. Yes. It's actually, even though it's four things, it's a, it's a continuum. It's actually like a... It's literally a disc where, like a circle, where you can be strong in a couple of things and weak in others, but you can place yourself on the, on the circle. And then you can place other people in the circle too. And then there's strategies for people who are more in the right-hand side of the circle. How do they interact well with people in the top left or bottom left or whatever? And they're quite, I find, really actionable tools that they provide you. That's just one example. 
There's many other. And I think it's worth investing the time. And again, it's not something that you enjoy doing necessarily. But I think it's really important. I learned that. And do you remember what was your this profile? Yeah, I was uh, an SI, mostly S. I like the stability. I like to keep the peace. So I do tend to avoid confrontation. But it's also related to wanting a liking routine or that stability from like your day-to-day knowing what's coming. It's interesting because both of those are very people-focused because traditionally the I, the interpersonal or influencer, yeah. is seen kind of a, like as the extrovert liking to hang out with people yeah. on the extrovert side. And then the S is not necessarily an introvert. It's yeah. usually people that will go to the party, will go to the gathering. Yeah. They don't need to be the center of attention, but they like yeah. getting to know people, mingling. Yeah. And But they'd also be there to keep the peace, to help resolve yes. conflicts. Whereas just the Cs that tend to be more the introverts. Correct. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Yeah. I do find this stuff interesting. Yeah. It helps. Same. But, my point is that it's worth investing in this, even if you're not interested in it. It helps. Like you can't ignore it. So interesting. So mine is driver, so D and I, yeah. interpersonal. That um, makes sense. Very, very closely aligned. Yeah. And for a long time, I was quite uncomfortable because I saw the C as the analytical mm. piece. So I was like, well, what am I doing working <laughs> in analytics if I'm the analytical yeah. in this behavioral one isn't like a strong strength of mine naturally? And you're probably a D, but close to the C as well. Yeah. But looking at C. I know quite a few data scientists who are D, so don't worry. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. That, that, that's what I can do. We're not all introverts. Correct. Yeah, that's a really good point. It is important to invest in this thing. Another learning I've made is, is to always focus on retention. Never lose sight of, of you know, different ways, different retention strategies. Because let's face it, our scientists are in hot demand and recruiters can be quite aggressive. And it's quite a challenge because the youngsters get easily distracted by someone else's shiny toys. Distracted by money too, but not, I don't think as much. The hype doesn't really help in terms of you know the big salaries because it's not, it's not always the case. But I think it's not just the money. It's being distracted by someone else's shiny toys. And when they're young, they're susceptible to that. So you have to be mindful of it and make them realize to be conscious of it too and work on providing an environment where they wouldn't want to leave. It's the best place possible. (laughs) It's one of the pieces of advice I provide as well to young data scientists. While I accept that it's important to try different experiences when you're young, it's also important to see things through, not get too distracted. It's easy to think that something's better over there, but facing the challenges where you are is equally important as a professional to develop, to face challenges and overcome them, learn how to overcome them, see things through and um, yeah, recognize the good stuff yes. that, that you do have. That is very true. The seeing things through, that gives you a lot of learning and a really solid experience. Because I have heard people in the past say, I need to look for another job because I already know how to use every platform and technology in the team. But that's usually very yeah. short. Or this is too frustrating. The data is too messy. IT keeps getting in the way or our stakeholders just don't understand us. And it's easy to just give up and think that it's going to be better somewhere else. Or you hear that someone's doing something cool, a particular technology that they're using or certain kinds of machine learning that they're doing only to get there and realize that they're not. They don't even have a proper BI environment. It's easy for the youngsters to get disillusioned and distracted having the discipline. If there's a challenge, like, you know, some that I mentioned, in your current organization, like, the data is always too busy or IT mm-hmm. keeps getting it's a good idea to work on those challenges and find ways to overcome them because most organizations have those same issues. So I try to encourage them to see things through and embrace the opportunity to learn, develop from it, not give up too easily, too quickly. It's really great advice. That is awesome. 
Yuval, that is an excellent note to end on. This has been outstanding. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your wisdom and all your learnings. It's been truly fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always good chatting to you. Uh, You too. Thanks so much. Thanks. Data Source Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Data Source is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.